God has something to say about you and I and how we handle the opposition, the stress, the difficulties, the challenges that we all face at different chapters of our lives. You cannot live without having trouble and trauma in your life. Um, we would prefer life work out in a, a way that would be easy and happy and successful and everyone would live happily ever after, but it does not work that way. Uh, we will face struggles. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about three very oversimplified ways of looking at suffering. We have self-inflicted suffering. You can bring it on by sin, by poor choices. We have suffering that can happen because we're fallen creatures in a fallen context. Bad things happen. It's not pointing or blaming anything. We're broken creatures in a broken context. Or you can be opposed. Others can come after you. You can have opposition in your life. And again, it's oversimplified, but a way to think about the way suffering can come into our lives. Self-inflicted, just a condition of a broken world, or others who may impose problems on us. When we struggle, when, not if, uh, believers need to have a way of thinking about it, a way of responding to it. We're not to be quite like the world in this regard. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about the passage in Acts where Paul and Silas have been beaten, they're enchained, they're, uh, they're sore, and they're singing hymns at midnight. And my friend Jim Trafficant said, why are we not as Christians singing hymns at midnight more often? The whole Praetorian Guard was hearing. This little letter to the Philippians is often talked about casually as joy. It's Paul's most joyous letter. And that is true, but it misses the bigger picture. They're joyful in difficult situations. They're joyful no matter their circumstance. They're joyful when the trials come, not if. And he's encouraged personally in his own life as he sees them navigate the waters, but he's also challenging them, keep on in this regard, because it's too easy for human nature when trials come when struggles come, we don't always respond the right way. Let's look at the passage today, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. I'll read, you can follow on screen or on your Bible. Chapter 1, Philippians, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that you only believe in him. But he also suffered for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. So when we're in opposition, when we face these challenges as a believer, how do we respond? That's what we're looking at this morning. This, I've called this section good citizenship, and we'll talk about a word in particular, why I chose that. But Paul is essentially saying you need to be a good citizen, a citizen living in a becoming way uh, in this situation. There's two things to keep in mind. Are there, they're under Roman rule, and they're also under the rule of God. Uh, Augustine talked about the city of God and the city of man. We're under Romans' thumb, and we're under God's rule and God's reign. As a Roman citizen, as a citizen of the West, we are to obey the laws. We're to be a good citizen in our context. If you, uh, in our worldview, you're supposed to pay your taxes. You're supposed to drive under the speed limit or thereabouts. 
Uh, you're supposed to pay your HOA. You're supposed to be kind to your community, not tell lies, not steal, not be a thief or a thug. Uh, that's a, being a law-abiding citizen. You're to live as a good citizen, and you're to be a good citizen. But as believers under God's law, under the kingdom, where it's even more important how we act as a becoming citizen. He says, conduct yourselves in a way, a worthy way. So we're to live a certain way, whether you're a Christian worker, a student, a professor, you're in the medical field, you're raising kids, you're homeschooling. Are you doing this in such a way that you're conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, interesting word that's used here in the Greek New Testament, polituomai, polituomai. And it's a, it's a truncated word, it was a loan word that we bring into politics. But the first part of that word, we hear the word political. But it's not what we think of. We think of politics today as a bunch of, you know, complicated liars. <laughs> Present company accepted, right? We have, we have good politicians. But that's how we, we look at politics as this evil power thing, right? Well, that's not how the word was used in the first century. The, the, this term is to be part of a culture, to be a citizen, to be a good actor where you live and breathe. To be a person of a city, you represent that city and you conduct yourself in that fashion. Later on, Paul will use it in the same little letter in chapter 3, verse 20, and he will say, he will add the words, our citizenship is in heaven. He's reminding us, yeah, we're citizens of the world, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19, he will add to it, fellow citizens with the saints. So this idea of citizenship is, we, we sometimes hear the word family of God. Uh, when you walk the aisle, pray the prayer, when you trusted Christ and Christ alone to do for you what you could not do for yourself, when you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you understood and embraced it by faith, you became a citizen of the kingdom of God. You became part of the family of God. And as such, we're to conduct ourselves in a certain way. We're under Roman rule. We're under a Western rule, but we're also under God's rule. That's what he's sketching out here. Now, this is a very pointed reminder in a time when we live in a political landmine of problems. Uh, you can go down the list of vaccines and climate change and critical race theory and uh, the so-called euphemistic pro-choice movement, which I call pro-death movement, um, all these different things, the, the, the challenge of parental rights, what you can and cannot teach your children in school. In some ways, it seems out of control. It seems like there's no way to navigate it. And in, in the mix of all this, personal rights have become God's. The I, me, my pronouns have supplanted the idea of a citizenship. The I, me, my pronouns have supplanted the idea that I serve God, not myself. My rights, my identity, my choice, my body, my decision, we've turned personal rights into little gods. It's the idols of the West. Paul says we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is a calibrating sentence. That's not go out there and fight for your rights, what's right and wrong. That's live in a way that you represent the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven as a good example to all around you. Are you, am I living in a manner that's worthy, that reflects back on, that honors the gospel of Jesus Christ? Christ is our measure. Christ is our Lord. He is our King. He is the one who forgives us our sin. He died in our place. But when I think about that, it's, it's, it's kind of high tones. It's high language. It's stained glass, Michael. It's way up there. I know all that, but 
I'm disconnected from it. And Paul knows this as an apostle, and he's going to, in a way, not put the theology on a lower shelf, he's going to articulate it in such a way to say, look at my example as I try to follow Christ's example. And that's where this passage is simply going. Um, let me read verse 28 to 27 again. I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that from God. So we have this good citizenship. Now he's going to talk about a way of measuring it. There's two ways we look at what, how do I live as a good citizen in this difficult culture? I need to live steadfast and I need to live fearlessly. Let's look at these for just a moment. Standing firm in one spirit. He's going to talk about his own suffering and he's going to use a term that means to stand or lean into something. Uh, years ago, I was not a great athlete. I was big. I was strong for my age category. I was somewhat of a lummox. I was slow. I didn't have very good hands. So I was a lineman. And I played uh, left tackle, offense, and defense. In basketball, I played center because I was taller than most kids. And uh, they didn't really want me to have the ball very often. But they liked me to get rebounds and give it back to the guy who could shoot. So that was sort of my role in life. Uh, on the line, interestingly, and the coach would work with me in, a lot on this, is your weight and your standing in the right position for when the ball is, is executed, when hut is called, if you're on your heels, you're going to be on your derriere. If you're leaning in and you time it just right, you've got a good chance of either stopping your opponent or putting him on his derriere. And you have to be planted. You have to be standing firm. Paul uses the same language here. The way we stand firm is through our spirit and our mind. This is not the Holy Spirit he's talking about here. It's more, we talk about heart and soul, or a mindset would be a good way of thinking about this. Your mindset is to stand firm. I need to be in a position thinking, standing, we might say in our heart and mind, in a way that I can deal with the assault. Um, don't miss that he says striving together. So we're not just doing this individualistically. We're doing it as part of the body of Christ. We stand firm together. So when we all go out and help with food, when we all go out and help work with FCA, for example, or some effort, we can make a much bigger difference than if we're just doing it by ourselves. That's his point. Striving together, it will fi we'll find its way again in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And he will say, we contend, we strive together with one another. One of my professors, John Hanna, often said, when you go to war, you will take whoever will go with you. It doesn't matter their political view. It doesn't matter their, quote, religion. It doesn't matter their God. If you're going to war, you take anybody with you. How much more in the Christian body of Christ? In the body of Christ, we stand together on certain issues. And yes, it might be hard, but that's the second part, is you do it fearlessly. You're not alarmed by your opponents. They're going to be there. Um, Paul instructs, don't give way to intimidation. So I unapologetically talk about being pro-life. And I think pro-choice pro is a euphemism for the culture of death. Well, it's my rights, my body. You can say that all you want, but that person is a free agent. That person is made in the image of God. 
as a father of three adoptive children, uh, this is important to me. And there's a whole lot of people out there that are more than happy to take that, quote, unwanted child into a wanted situation. That is not the only, no, it's I, me, my. So the culture has won an argument, and it's so vitriolic, it's so dangerous to talk about, uh, that we have gotten afraid. Well, when it comes to that topic, not to be mean or mad or yell, but I can stand firm, and I can fearlessly say, I think that you are made in the image of God. I think you and I are unique individuals. Our fingerprints are all unique. Why in the world did he make every fingerprint, every toe print unique? Every one of you is unique completely. And the moment of sperm and egg conception, at the moment, everything there for a human being, everything is hardwired. All it takes is nourishment and time. And that person will become a human being and a teenager. And if you live so long, they'll become a wonderful person and marry and bring your grandchildren home. <laughs> Side story, one of my adopted daughters who happens to be here today, who I won't name, <laughs> has been a very vocal person when someone talks about abortion. She says, I wasn't aborted. I wasn't aborted. We need to be steadfast and unashamed, steadfast and courageous. We don't have to be mean. We don't need bullhorns. We don't burn down buildings. We don't attack people, but you can stand firm. How much more when it comes to things of the kingdom of God than just our personal rights? The context, the bigger context of this must be kept in mind. Listen to what Dr. John Walbert writes about this. It's a bit cumbersome. I'll try to unpack it as we go through it. Although persecution and trial as they come into the life of the Christian, may be interpreted by the unbelieving world as disfavor of God. What's he saying? When bad things happen, the world says, see, your God doesn't love you. That makes sense? See, your God doesn't, didn't come through for you. He continues, evidence that they, the world, they are under God's judgment. They are actually just the opposite. The evidence that they are separated from the world. So when a person says such things, Walbert is suggesting, it shows they're not saved. It shows they don't understand this. And you need to, in Paul's terms, understand to stand firm, be fearless, don't be afraid, uh, know what you believe. He continues, evidence they are separated from the world that knows not salvation and knows not uh, the God. Their fearlessness was a token also of the certainty of their deliverance of God and the ultimate judgment on their adversaries. Again, it's a cumbersome paragraph, but he's saying, don't be, a, don't, don't be surprised when this happens. That's the way the world's going to respond. You need to understand something. Your salvation is secure. They don't understand this yet. So the onslaught you're going to have, these opponents who stand against you, uh, that's going to be part of your life. Again, I've said it till I'm blue in the face. Where did you ever get the idea your life is going to work out a certain way? That's delusional. That's delusional. Bad things are going to happen. Our sin, our fallen condition, or people are going to come after us. How we respond is the only thing we can control. Obviously, we cannot sin, but how we respond is the only thing we can control. We can't fix all these issues. It's hard to embrace. Uh, Christians were thrown to the lions. They were burned, they were crucified upside down, 
narrow dipped them in tar and put them on, on poles and burned them to light the larger grounds of his palace. Uh, not pleasant stuff we like to talk about. Looks like God abandoned you. Paul's in prison writing this, don't forget. And he says, you need to stand firm and be fearless. He's not just saying drub up your courage. He'll explain that in a moment. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Easy for you to say, Paul. No, he understood better than most of us who his opponents were. Which is a sign of destruction for them. Those are hard words. But of salvation for you. When they act this way and they don't know God, you don't have to worry about that. That's God's dealing with them. What you need to be confident about is your salvation is secure and you can stand fearless and you can stand unafraid and you can stand firm because of your relationship with him. Verse 29, for to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. These are hard words. To be steadfast and fearless is because you have believed in Jesus Christ. You believe in him, but the second part, we got to suffer for him. I don't like this part. I think Rob Morgan talked about it last week. I've mentioned it many, many times when Ananias is dispatched to go tell Saul about Jesus Christ, and he does not want to deliver the message. Lord, have you heard what this man has done to your people, is the paraphrase dialogue. I don't want to go talk to him. And the last comment, the voice says, the voice of God says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Prosperity theology is a lie from the pit of hell. The apostle was told he's going to suffer. And he's suffering, and he's in jail, and he's writing about joy. Don't miss the bigger picture that's going on here. Be steadfast fast and fearless, not only because you're saved, but you're going to suffer for his sake. Now, we need to think a little bit about this. Paul isn't a casual observer. Paul's been beaten. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 sometimes, chapter 11 sometimes, excuse me. All the things he's gone through. And then at the end he says, but more than all these is the concern, the weight of the churches. He's been beaten, he's been imprisoned, he's been snake bit, he's been shipwrecked. He lists just a portion of what happened to him as a follower of Christ, an apostle of Christ. And he's saying, but I'm more concerned about his church. Those things are temporal, but Christ's church is eternal. Let's think about this contextually because we get lost in some of the detail. In chapter 1, one of the messages right before this is Paul said he, if he died it would be to his gain, but to stay on in the flesh to remain would be of their benefit for them. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes is what he says specifically. Remember some of the key points so far. He's talking about their progress and joy in their trials. He's speaking about his hope to see them again. When I get out of here, I want to see you again. He's looking forward to a reunion. He's looking forward to getting out of prison, even though the gospel is spread in prison. He is encouraged. This isn't a, it's all going to be okay. You know, when something bad happens, I've been, back when we spent a lot of time in hospitals, we don't much anymore with COVID, but we used to spend a lot of time with people in pre 
pre-op and post-op and waiting rooms and go visit and during recovery and we would sit with them and someone comes oh it's all going to work out for good you just want to punch them in the face you want i mean in a christian sort of way <laughs> don't give me glib stuff when i'm dealing with pain right now there's a time to talk about that but not that way right now when when and if you get the diagnosis that you have cancer You'll be anxious before the test. You'll be anxious before the results. They won't tell you over the phone. You got to go sit and talk to somebody, and they'll come in, and you'll your heart pressure's up. You're probably clammy. You're probably sweating, and they pull it out and they go, "Well, we got some bad news. We got some good news. Bad news is you have cancer. Good news is one of the most treatable kind." Oh, I feel better already, right? And then they map out a protocol, and we want to do this. Maybe it's chemo, radiation, maybe it's surgery. Who knows? Uh, and and Listen, I have more respect for the medical community than any community on the planet. I, I love these men and women who spend their life trying to help sick people. I really do applaud them. They have a hard, hard job. And once you get through the shell shock and you go out and you go, okay, and you start doing some homework and you look online and you say, okay, I'm going I'm to do what the doctor says or I'm going to try this. We're going to look around and get a second opinion. Finally, you get in a treatment program and you meet somebody along the way and they're, they've recovered. And you start talking to this man or woman. And they go, you know, a year ago, I, I looked like you. I'd lost 100 pounds. I was sick. I was, looked like a prisoner of war. I felt terrible. I lost my hair. And I got my weight back, and I feel better than I've ever felt in years. And you will get through this. That sounds a whole lot better than when the doctor or the PA tells you uh, you got an 80% chance of beating this. One's clinical One's experiential. Paul's in prison. You're going to be all right. Your suffering will be hard, but you're going to be all right. When you and I suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, and I don't know how to, there's a very fine nuance in that sentence. You can suffer for self-inflicted sin stupidity. You can suffer because we're fallen people in a fallen world. You can suffer because someone else is coming after you. How you suffer for Christ's sake, I can't tell you how to nuance that precisely. But I do know this. When someone else has gone through it and they tell me I'm going to be okay, it doesn't lessen the pain, but it carries me through the pain. Someone else who's had cancer or back surgeries or gone through a divorce or lost their job or lost their money or has a child, a son or daughter that's broken their heart or the worst thing any, any person will ever endure to bury a child, you're not supposed to bury your children. When you go through those things and someone else who has been down that road and done that comes alongside you and said, I, I buried my son too. I went through a divorce as well. I've lost everything as well. I've been through cancer twice now. I fill in the blank. That doesn't alleviate the pain, but you know what? That carries me through the pain. Because I see somebody else got out on the other side. Paul's saying this temporally and eternally. I hope to see you. I can't wait to get out of prison and come see you. Did he know for 100% he would see them? No. But he had hope and a confidence. Fast forward, he's going to die. Fast forward, we're all going to die, Cherry Michael Lee's sermon. The point is, when you suffer, when I suffer, we have two ways of responding. Lots of ways of responding. But the way Paul wants us to respond, the way Jesus wants to respond is, for Christ's sake. I don't understand all I know. But somehow, if I suffer well, it honors Christ. 
Somehow, if you suffer well, it means something to Christ. It doesn't lessen the pain, but it carries me through the pain. Uh, let me sum this up with saying every one of us needs an example to follow. Paul is painting this enormous picture in this first chapter, this remarkable letter about joy. We, we look at it in a short cliff note, joy. It's not just about joy. It's about life not working the way we want. And how do you and I respond? How do you and I live when the world's a mess, when sin mucks everything up? We need an example. Paul loved the Philippians. He loved Christ. He was a proponent of grace. He's sharing Christ with the people that are abusing him in prison. Um, I would have much rather been in the palace talking to Caesar, sipping tea, than in the dungeon being beaten and abused and chained to prison guards. But that's not the choice he got. But the whole Praetorian Guard heard about it. When it comes to examples, here are a few, and they come from the passage. You may find a better one that fits your situation. I need an example of faith over fear. When something bad happens, I can get afraid. I can be afraid. My response can be worry and anxiety and fear. I need a person who has faith in the midst of it. Sure, I look to the Lord Jesus. Sure, I look to Scripture. And yes, those are foundational theological stones that don't move. But if I find somebody else that's gone through something that's fearful by faith, that's the person I want to talk to. That's not lessening the Word or Christ or God or the Bible or Paul. It's what we're learning here. Paul says, follow my example. I want this for you. And the same is true. I need faith over fear. When something happens to you that you become afraid, you need an example of someone who's been faithful in the process. Secondly, I need an example of suffering over self-pity. When bad things happen, when I'm hurt, when I'm uncomfortable, when I have a loss, it's easy to get on the I, me, my, the, you know, everybody hates me, nobody loves me, I think I'll go eat worm theology. It's very easy to suffer poorly. And certainly when bad news happens, things stop, and sometimes you need some calibration and you get a pulse on things before you just jump to a conclusion. But I need to understand how have others suffered for Christ's sake as opposed to retreating to self-pity? I deal with a lot of people that live in self-pity. And so I need examples of those who don't. Paul didn't live in self-pity. Johnny doesn't live in a wheelchair in self-pity. Robert doesn't live in self-pity. My wife Cindy does not live in self-pity. All three of those people persist in prayer. They have suffering, they have disappointments, but they don't go down this role of victim and self-pity. They go, I've got to recalibrate. And those people you have them in your life too. They're examples of people who pray. They're examples of people who suffer well. Doesn't mean they like their suffering. They don't like it any more than I do, but they're living faithfully in it. I needed an example of endurance over surrender. When hardships come, again, these aren't if, they're when. When hardships come, and I'm not sure it's true for all of us. I think as you get older, perhaps, um, when hardships come, you want to quit. Enough of this. Been there, done that, served my time. I don't want to do this anymore. I get that part of it. I have some pastor friends that are much older than me, and they're bitter. They're bitter. 
They spent a lot of their life at some church, and then they left and things went sideways, and they're very unhappy people. I understand very well how they feel. I don't want to be that way. Entropy is tough to beat. Entropy is hard to break out of. And I need endurance over surrender. Um, my plans don't always work out. Your plans don't always work out. Paul's plans certainly did not work out. I was joking with someone the other day. He says, you know, Paul says, I've been rich and I've been poor. And I always want to say, and rich is better. Why didn't I get that trial in life? I'll make you uber rich rather than a guy with a bad back. Yeah. I didn't get asked. I got picked to be the lineman. I got picked to be the left tackle to get beat up. How are you going to do it? I want to endure. You see, you and I respect people who endure. We talked about coaches earlier today. I won't name names, but think of some of these legendary coaches that have endured hell on earth. And they still coach. It could be a problem. <laughs> it could be that's all they know what to do. But there's also a tenacity in some of those guys. I spent a little time with Tony Dungy. My word, what a man of endurance for all he has been through. He did not surrender. Lots of stories we could share. I need examples. I need an example of sharing Christ over being silent. This has become so difficult. It's always been challenging for Christians to talk about their faith, to talk about the gospel. But in this vitriolic culture and this uh, bizarre social media world, it's impossible to talk about anything without getting into a fight. And so we've retreated more and more into the background. And COVID has unintended consequences, made us cloister even more. Our only relational outlet is social media, which is very effective. <laughs> Put your opinion out there and people go, oh, why didn't I think of that? You know, thank you. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way at all. Um, so when I'm anxious or I feel ill-equipped or I feel nervous or I feel like it's been too long, I need to talk to this friend of mine about Jesus and I haven't done it and I've delayed too long and I start beating myself up. You know, I think of my friend Bill Howard. I think of Rob Morgan. I think of my friends Barbara and Spencer who share Christ all the time on the backstroke. I need examples of those who share their faith versus being silent. And sometimes it's just that simple. It's not, what would Jesus do, which is really bad theology. It's, what would so-and-so, how would he share Christ in this context? What can I learn from him? Um, I, I don't have the skill set some of these people do. I have the gifting. I, I work at it. One of the things I do is with my friends is after a period of time, I say, we've been friends for a while. I, I'd love to take you to lunch or coffee and talk to you about something, and we'll talk about whatever. And I'll finally say, you know, we've been friends for a while, and the most important thing in my life, I want to tell you about it. I'm not trying to sell you a home-based business or anything, but I want to share something with you and get your opinion before, during, and after. Before I knew Christ, when I met Christ, how my life has changed. And Christ has revolutionized my view of life. I'm forgiven of sin. I have a new relationship. I have a new family. Things that were not important to me are important to me. The things that were wrongly important to me have lost some of their grip on me. And it's a life of faith and struggle. But I'd love for you to know this Jesus Christ. And 
I, less than a handful of times have people been mad at me. There have been those who have been mad at me. And it could be the way, it could be the time, who knows what. The interesting thing about sharing Christ is the results of the transaction are up to him, not you or me being persuasive. That's the part we can't get over. It's not like any other human dynamic relational transaction thing we ever talk about in life. You're closing a sale. You're doing a deal. You're helping somebody. You're providing a service. You're trying to do something for them and they in return. This is simply sharing a message that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life. You're forgiven of your sin. You're indwelt by this person called the Holy Spirit of God. Your life begins to change. You're conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, transformed, and less and less like your sinful self. And you'll never look back. Now, it's the Holy Spirit's job to do the rest. It's a very strange transaction. We're giving a message. We're euangelion. We're talking about the good news. And then we let Christ do the work. But you know what? Too often we're silent as opposed to speaking out. So I'm going to, uh, some of you might be mad at me. Some of you will ignore me. I'm going to start wearing a t-shirt just to get off my lawn. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Share Christ with one person this week. There's somebody in your sphere of influence that you need to talk about the Savior with this week and just in my saying that some of your heart rate went up some of you got mad whatever you're experiencing you probably already have a name in your head you know i need to circle back with so-and-so i've never talked to this friend of mine i got a neighbor friend i got another homeschool mom i got someone in the neighborhood i got a co-worker a young man in this church a few weeks back was working with a client who's going through a lot of trouble and after they did their sort of business part of it, he, you know, he metaphorically closed his notebook and said, can I, can I tell you something that's important to me? First time he'd ever done it. With a client, which, so you have to understand, I get it, work world's different. Can I talk to you as a friend? Can I talk to you not as a client relationship? And he shares the gospel with him. The guy comes to Christ right there. It wasn't his convincing persuasion knowing the answer. It was he chose not to be silent. There's one person this week you need to identify and pray to ask God to help you and tell your story. Before I knew Christ, this is when I met him. This is what happened to me. And now this is what I live for. Listen, there's not much left on this world right now that's really attractive, is there? You really want to hang around here in 20, 30, 40, 50 years the way things are going? How about eternity in the kingdom of God where your sins are forgiven the relationship with the creator of the universe who loves you more than you even understand awaits you forever we're selling lifelong grass-fed vegan organic steaks that taste better than you've ever eaten in your life over eating hot dogs on a barrio with dirt on them and we're worried about what people might say. Will you share Christ or be silent? I need examples. You do too. Paul gave us his. Jesus is the example. Finally, I need an example of maturity rather than immaturity. When you and I get hurt, how do we respond? Do we respond in childish ways? 
And this goes back to the I, me, my. We babysit every Thursday night. We have three ch grandchildren here locally. We go over and take care of the two boys. Are just tough and tumble, a lot of fun. The little girl's very young, a few months now. So she sort of, you know, eat and bottle and bathe. And, you know, it, it's not, she's not fun yet. Um, so so I, I play with the boys. We have a fun time. And invariably, they get hurt. One gets hurt, invariably, every time. And they start crying. And a lot of it, there's a lot of reasons. And uh, Cindy, she's CC, and I'm Saba. Saba is Hebrew for, for granddaddy. And she's CC. And CC and Saba come over. And so CC's not always happy with this grandparent technique that I use, but I use it nonetheless. So when, when there's a little problem or there's the hurt, if, now if they're really hurt, it's one thing. But if they're like, you know, my fingers hurt, or, you know, or my brother did this or did whatever, I, I do this thing. I go, oh, brother. And Nine times out of ten, they laugh, and they go, oh, brother, and from, from pouty and complaining and injury, and I mean my, the childish response to a little hurt, oh, brother, and they have, you know. Now, when it doesn't work, I get the eye roll from Cece, but <laughs> when it does work, I think about my own experience and go, Michael, when something happens, oh, brother, are you really going to whine about that thing? Are you really going to be that immature? C.S. Lewis said, only a child expects the world to be fair. Life ain't fair. How we respond is the one thing we have complete control over in life. Our own sin, the fallen context in which we live, or when other people hurt or wound us or oppose us, we can respond with joy. We can respond in faith. Um, what example do you need? Those are just some I need. What do you need? And not chances are, but I know there are examples of those who have gone through difficult things when they occur. And those are the men and women I need in my life. Those are the women and men you need in your life.